The Deeper Blue podcast is brought to you by Sunto. Finnish engineering, pioneering adventure from mountaintop to ocean floor since 1936. Sunto. Welcome to the Deeper Blue podcast your weekly guide to everything that is happening around the world underwater. My name is Stephen Whelan. I'm the founder of deeperblue.com, the world's most popular diving website. Every week, the Deeper Blue podcast covers everything that's happening in the scuba diving, free diving, diving travel, and ocean advocates world. So join us as we explore the Deeper Blue. Hi, welcome to the Deeper Blue Podcast. This is Jason Elias, producer of the podcast. In today's episode, we start off the news of the week underwater with Deeper Blue founder and host of the show, Stephen Whelan, and myself. Then, freediving icon and co-host of the Deeper Blue Podcast, Megan Heaney-Greer, speaks with Dr. Mara Hart, who works at a nonprofit focused on fish sustainability. Then we hear a top tip from Rosie Bancroft, a para-swimmer for Team Great Britain, on what she needs to dive underwater. Finally, we hear best dive ever from Bill Beard from Costa Rica. But first, the news of the week underwater. News of the week underwater with Stephen Whelan and Jason Elias. I can tell you back, Jason. We've got the the funny (laughs) intros again. (laughs) So I hope you had a nice rest last week, leaving it to the hosts and co-hosts to to do this. You guys did a great job. I had my break a few weeks ago. It's your break this time. so That's right. Well, a break, as you know, you have a two-year-old as well. There's really no true break ever, but yes, you guys did a great job. Thank you, Sarah, for filling in. You did a fantastic job. Absolutely. Yeah, no, very, very British Mm -hmm. last week. I did have crumpets and biscuits while I listened. We were sitting and having cups of tea and uh, and scones at the uh, at the same time. What is a crumpet? A crumpet. Uh, oh dear! Are you testing my British uh, Britishness here? It's a form of uh, baked, baked goods. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so let's talk about the news this week. News this week. Where in the world underwater are we starting? So we're going to go to South Africa. That's where mm. we're going to start. Okay, uh, and this is a, this is an absolutely fantastic bit of news, and actually has been mm. really popular mm-hmm. this week. There's a lady called Karen Vander Over. She is South African, and she has recently broken the women's deep cave diving records. Incredible! So this is mind blowing. So she dove incredible two hundred and thirty six. 0.04 meters, which is 770 feet. And it was in the Bushmansgat cave in South Africa's Northern Cape province. It exceeded the previous women's deep caving record of 221 meters. So that's 721 feet. By, so substantial margin, almost another 50 feet. It is, absolutely. And it took seven hours and 15 minutes. Seven hours and 18 minutes, Jason. Please. Seven hours and 18 that's, minutes, Don't, yes. don't, don't so do this, it out of those three minutes. That's very important. Of course, anytime that someone pushes the boundaries of the human experience like this, like it's not just a 770 foot dive which in and of itself is incredible for seven hours but then to be doing it in in a cave is absolutely astounding uh 774 feet in real terms is uh 236 meters just so you know (laughs) 236 meters what is that like seven miles we're an international (laughs) podcast jason we have to cover imperial and metric Uh, it's uh, just the idea of pushing yourself to that limit 
in a cave. Uh, it just blows my mind that someone would do that. I mean, this stuff is incredibly dangerous. It's yeah. incredibly challenging. I, I wonder how, like, how do you do safety on something? Because you can't have safety divers down with you like that, doing that, right? I mean, this I would assume she's on her own, right? She is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh my god! Uh, and it's all about safeties and redundancies and all this stuff. But uh, basically, oh go in god. and people keep their fingers and toes and fins crossed yeah. that you come out. I mean, this is incredibly yeah. dangerous stuff, and it's yeah. a huge hats off to her. As you've spoken to, Jill Heinhurst is is one of the absolutely yeah. amazing cave diver explorer yeah. people that yeah. we we know, a friend of the podcast and friend of your podcast. It takes years and years of training to do some of this stuff. It's amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. There's more you can read about it at deeperboo.com and it's uh, just uh, throwing that in there. Well done. Well done, mate. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> and just as a final, like, it's a Trimix 685. No idea what that means, but it sounds super technical. So congratulations to her. I, I apologize to all the tech divers listening <laughs> to this podcast. I will be having words with Jason after this. Just to let you know. Uh, so now we're going to uh, we're going to jump in the little virtual plane over to Croatia. I think Michael Menduno is going to be sending me an email about not knowing what Tri Trimix six eighty five is. I'm sure he will be. Yep. Sorry, Michael. Sorry, M two. So, <laughs> so in Croatia, more record breaking stuff. Hmm. So four free diving world records were uh, set a week ago at the Croatian Pool Free Diving National Championships. Mm. So this was a pool competition, and the first one was Vanya Peles broke the men's sea mass world record in dynamic no fins. This is a mono fin swimming horizontally backwards and forwards in the water, holding your breath mm. type mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Did a 220 meter, that's 722 feet swim. Then Budimir Sobat set a new. It's not Guinness. Budimir Sobat. It's Budimir Buddha Sobat. Coolest name I've heard in a long time. So Budimir Buddha Sobat. Do you think he's Buddhist? With I don't name know. Like it's, not, it's not spelled so, the same. It's just, but okay. he's got a badass name. Badass name. So it sets a new Guinness World Record for a 24 minute, 33 seconds oxygen assisted static apnea. So this is where, I mean, the record for holding your breath floating down in the water sort of thing is, is about 11, it's about 12 minutes. And this is where they breathe oxygen for about half an hour, an hour before they actually do this. And it's, it's saturated. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. then they can do a very extended static apnea. So floating face down in the water. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it, it's deathly dull to watch, right? Because it's someone floating face down in the water for 24 minutes. It's, it's not a spectator sport. Uh, and I've seen many a freediving competition in my time mm. and been at many. And I remember talking to some journalists about freediving the Olympics. And we did talk about a static apnea being not one of the events that is going to make it into the Olympics because it really is not a spectator sport. Right, you just it is literally like a dead body in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> a dead body in the pool. He's 54 years old, Sobat. Buddha Sobat is 54 years old. That gives hope to guys like you and me. It's not over yet, Stephen. I, I'm it's not, not 54. For speak, for, speak for yourself, Jason. I'm, I'm not, not 54. So I'm just it's, saying it's uh, not over. We got, we got hope. We got hope. We got hope. <laughs> there were two other records set by Mirela Kardasovic. She set two CMAS women's world records. The first one in dynamic with bifins. This is with traditional two fins, which is a separate discipline because <laughs> there's a difference between using two fins versus a monofin. Actually, two fins is harder, actually. I don't mm -hmm. know if people know that. It's harder mm -hmm. to do that than using a monofin. So 231 meter, 758 foot dive swim, dynamic with 
by fins. And then she also did a 206 meter, that's 676 feet swim in dynamic no fins with a monofin. Okay, moving on. What's next? So this one is about Greece. The Greek Ministry of Culture and Sports has announced the official opening for recreational divers. Mm -hmm. So that includes bits of flotsam like you, Jason. (laughs) 91 listed ship and aircraft wrecks. uh, And they're actually going to put, they're going to open up more. They talk about it being recreational, but you know many of these are at technical diving depths, which you know is 130 right, meters right. and stuff. There are some that are recreational diving, and these are a lot of World War II wrecks, planes, European planes. There's American planes and Nazi planes out there, which is super cool to think about, right? So what they really mean by this is you don't need to go and get government permits to go and dive these things. They may be technical dives. You may need to go and do it, but you can go and do it without needing to you know, file a plan with the government and get agreements and permits right. and stuff beforehand, right. which is amazing. I mean, some of these wrecks, as you say, these are absolutely stunning, amazing wrecks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Britannic was a very famous expedition back in the 90s. Mm. Yeah, a bunch of British divers went to go and explore the Britannic. So It also speaks to the fact that things are starting to open up. Tentatively, it's just green spring shoots right now, but we're starting to see around the world that there's a way to travel to kind of do these things. That's what Greece is talking about. We were also talking about that Belize is now opening up. If you've been fully vaccinated, you don't even need to show a test as long as you got your vaccination card. Belize is now open, the Maldives. So it's a good sign for the industry that we can start traveling soon. I think we're all dying to get out there. Absolutely agree. Can't wait. Can't wait to get my girls yeah. wet. Uh, so what's next? I think we've I think we've got another record to talk about. Uh, Jason, oh, I, uh, yes. We do have a world record here that is actually of consequence. It's a man in Rockford, Illinois, a guy named... Bill Lambert has the world record for the oldest scuba diver in the world. So Bill Lambert has held it for three years in a row. He he said it at the age of 98. Then he said it at the age of 99. And this guy now just said it at the age of 100. Now, in order to do it, he had to go underwater for at least 20 minutes. He did it in South Belwats Pearl Lake. And there's a great video of him suiting up, which is just fantastic to see. I mean, the guy, he's 100 years old, and God bless him. If I can be diving at 100 years old, if I can be doing anything besides watching TV and wiping my chin at 100 years old, I'll I'll be so happy. He says he wants to do it for a fourth year in a row. I hope he does it. So that's just fantastic. Kudos to you, Bill. Absolutely. I think it's We got to get him on the show. We got to do an interview with him. Absolutely. I think, I think we that's said that last time we talked about it. Uh, I have a recollection that might be the case. <laughs> yes, we did. Um, so what is, what's next then? So a bit of dive computer news. I know you like oh, a bit of product, yes. product news, Jason. Gadget you know, guy. I'm a gadget so, guy. So there's this great dive computer, which actually we talked about last year in season one of the mm. podcast. It's the S2 Supersonic. I love the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company's called Oceans.io, and they've announced this dive computer that does all the things that a normal dive computer does. But the bit that's the most cool thing about all this, beyond all the the comedy stuff that we're talking about, is this is the first wearable dive computer with built-in buddy communication. That's right. So this this allows you to basically send, it's basically text messaging underwater. You can send little text messages to each other and stuff. So, you know, help out of air. 
help yeah, right. exclamation mark i think there's a five built-in pre-standard messages you can send one of them is out of air one of them is let's go up to the surface another one is shark i didn't understand why that was in there but still the the idea that you can start communicating with buddies underwater is both wonderful and terrible of course it's like the idea of getting phones on planes you know like well do i really want that but then it, being able to communicate underwater not just with hand signals but actually doing something beyond that might be very interesting so they've launched a kickstarter crowdfunding campaign and then that takes us to our last one our last story which of course Elon Musk is uh, now. Is it about uh, Bitcoin? Is it about Bitcoin? Bitcoin, of course. If, you, if you, Elon Musk is in the story, Bitcoin is also part of the story. Of Elon Musk has now offered scuba diving on Mars. So Elon Musk is one of his many things, as we all know, he does SpaceX. And scientists recently discovered three saltwater lakes buried beneath the iconic crimson crust of the red planet. So SpaceX is now offering a program called Mars and beyond and what they're doing is they're looking for aliens on the surface of mars and part of that is they want to go dive these saltwater lakes on mars now in order to do it there's a cool one million bitcoin to get a ticket on the spacex to take you to launch which works out in today's dollars to 60 million dollars but they also yeah. say by the time the mission actually takes off it will likely be valued in the billions now a simple photographer like me that runs a podcast is not going to be able to afford it but someone who for example runs the empire of deeper blue.com <laughs> might, be able, <laughs> might be able to afford something like this oh <laughs> uh, yeah maybe maybe <laughs> but, we'll see. but so. you can do it now you can go you can get your ticket and i would argue since it's a million bitcoin and bitcoin's continuing to go up now's the time to do it right this is it's only going to get more expensive so uh, it this definitely fits the jason elias tabloids uh <laughs> tabloids a meter thing so amazing it's fun i'd like to go dive in there i think most people think of mars as a very dry and dusty yes. place but you know There's we shall under see under the surface oceans there that is a fascinating thing and the idea of of course most of us are not going to go diving on mars but the idea of being able to do that that is that's part of the inspirational aspirational thing that we as human beings always look for and elon musk no matter what you feel about him he tends to play into those kind of things and i'm kind of a sucker for it so i could ask for a bitcoin sponsorship on the podcast to get me to mars i'll give you 0.0000001 of a bitcoin and to get you started jason so there you go at that rate i only need 100 billion people to give me a bitcoin yeah exactly all right well that's it for the news this week thank you Stephen. thanks jason good to see you as always buddy yeah, everyone right. remember latest news on deeperblue.com apart from jason's news where you have to go and search <laughs> on tabloids <laughs> thanks everyone cheers bye you're listening to the world's only weekly podcast for scuba diving free diving dive travel and ocean advocacy i'm inky questlar marine biologist and wildlife filmmaker and this is the Deeper Blue Podcast. Hi, this is Jason Leas, producer of the Deeper Blue Podcast. In today's episode, Deeper Blue co-host and freediving icon Megan Haney-Greer speaks with Dr. Mara Hart, a fellow freediver and marine scientist who works in the field of sustainable seafood. Dr. Hart has received wide attention for a TEDx talk, 
is the author of a book about the alien sex lives of ocean creatures entitled Sex in the Sea, and works on bringing attention to managing fishing around the world with the nonprofit Future of Fish. Dr. Hart talks a bit about her history of getting in the water, what drives her to be so passionate about being an ocean advocate, and a particular dive in the Solomon Islands that highlighted for her how the ocean inspires her to never give up. Yeah, my name is Mara Hart, and I'm the director of discovery at a small nonprofit called Future of Fish. And we work on creating sustainable seafood around the world, working with fishing communities to ensure that they can make a living fishing, but leave enough fish for the future. I honestly cannot remember a time when I did not want to be in or under the water. From very little, I have fond memories of always being the last one out of the water. You know, my lips were blue, my mother having to drag me out of, <laughs> out of the New England foamy seas. But I got certified when I was 12 in the Florida Keys. And from the beginning, I wanted to do scuba because I wanted to just be underwater exploring and being able to stay down there. But my first real introduction to freediving, which is my very strong passion, was at 17. And I was hooked from then on. What yeah. is it that keeps you coming back? What do you love the most about it? I keep going back because it's the place that I can really connect and be reminded of why I'm here, what it is that I want to do in this lifetime and where I feel restored. Even in the midst of like stormy, crazy seas, there's just something that's very centering. I can emerge, come back to the surface and get back to work. How did your background in the water launch you into writing your book, Sex in the Sea? The short answer is the more time I spent in the water, the more I realized that while I would have loved to have lived a life of ocean exploration and just being able to do science and explore, I felt like we really needed to act. And in order to solve the problems facing the ocean, we need all hands on deck. We need lawyers and policy folks and businesses and industry and technologies, entrepreneurs, you know, artists, everybody. But not everybody thinks about the ocean all the time. Not everybody does feel dried out like we do, right? And so Sex and the Sea, my book was really sort of a, a realization of a way to try to engage folks in the just weird and wondrous and remarkable behaviors that happen under the ocean through the lens of sex, which despite what people may say, everybody's curious about, right? Everybody wants to know. They might not admit it, but they do. And it's so critical for conservation, right? Sex is what creates abundance. It's what creates the diversity that makes everything hum. For me, it was a way to engage as many people as possible. And especially those who may not already be thinking about oceans, to sort of stumble into it and then hopefully be captivated and mesmerized and, and then want to be moved to engage and to act. How did you get the idea to write Sex in the Sea? Like all great ideas, there was a little bit of alcohol and a party involved. I was in grad school and I was at a party with graduate students from all different disciplines, so not just marine science. And we were talking about men and women and how we will never understand each other. And I, being the nerdy biologist, made the offhand comment, if only we were parrotfish. And everybody sort of stopped. And I was like, oh, well, you know, parrotfish, they start as females and then they change to males. So they know both sides of the equation. And everybody just kind of, you know, looked at me like, what? 
It's like, yeah, they change sex. And they're like, fish change sex? It's like, yeah, fish change sex, shrimp change sex. I mean, this is really common in the ocean. This is like a thing. And they all were fascinated. It was this awakening moment of like, oh yeah, most people don't don't think about these things all the time. Later that night, someone who I'd been talking to, I overheard them telling someone else, like, did you know that fish changed sex? And I just thought, oh, that's it. Sex. It's And in the ocean, sex is unbelievable. I mean, it is truly the most wild and fascinating subject. And I promise your imagination will never take you where nature can bring you. So that was where, <laughs> where we went. Over the course of your dive career, Mara, is there one particular dive that really stands out to you? That is the first one that pops into your head every time you think about your dive history. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to do two quick ones because they sort of bookend each other. So the first is a dive during graduate school. I was mapping a coral reef in the Caribbean, the very degraded reef. It was the third day of our field work and I'm underwater. I'm counting my corals. I'm identifying the different species. And this yellowtail snapper swims by. And the thing was probably the size of my hand. This was a very small fish. And I nearly jumped out of my skin. I realized in that moment that my reaction was because there were no other fish in the water column. For three days, we'd been diving. I mean, I'm talking damselfish, grasses, like there was just nothing. It, this reef was so overfished. And so that really sticks out to me as this moment of like, holy smokes this is wrong. The reef is quiet. The water column's empty. And I, I knew it was an unhealthy reef, but it wasn't until that moment it dawned on me the significance of how in trouble this system was. Fast forward to a year and a half ago, we're in the Solomon Islands. And it was the first dive. And before, you know, I'd even inverted to swim down, I lost my breath. It was so spectacular. The colors, the size of the corals. I mean, this was truly a coral metropolis where every single square inch of space was covered with something that was alive and vibrant straight out of a Dr. Seuss coloring book. And I was just so overwhelmed with how much life there was still there and healthy corals, not bleached, not dynamited. And, and this, again, the size, so corals, you know, their size is their age. And these things were hundreds of years old. I couldn't cover it with my arms out. I tried to do my wingspan and it just kept going. Truly mountains of corals and fields of staghorns and plating corals that were so big, they were cracking under their own weight. All the things I've been reading about, my nerdy science brain was like, oh, this is what coral competition looks like. Because every place where these corals were budding one another, you had this border that was just this war zone where they were fighting for that light in that space, battles for reproduction, predator prey, all of those dynamics in full display. When you have a degraded reef, you don't see that in action. I remember I was just sitting there trying to soak it all up and feel that vibrancy and the degree to which everything was just so alive. I think it means several things. One is it, it genuinely shows that we have no excuses for giving up 
there is still potential. These species still exist. They are still holding on and they're not just holding on by a thread. There are places where coral reefs are in good shape and we need to figure out how to preserve and protect those and then learn from those instances to figure out what's going well so that we can try to replicate it in other places. It also though does fuel a little bit of that fire in me that gets mad. Everywhere should look like this. And so it's that reminder of what we've lost and there's something that's motivating in that. This, this is why we're fighting because nature has not given up. These corals have not given up. The fish were enormous and everywhere. It was magical. I mean, it was absolutely idyllic. I will never forget the feeling, the visceral sense of that joyous elation where you just brought to tears. The world underwater, every week. I'm Francesca Trotman and I'm the founder of Love the Oceans. And you're listening to the Deeper Blue Podcast. And action. When I say action, that means you're supposed to say something. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Jason, season two of the Deep Blue podcast is brought to you by Suntor. Suntor. The, today, Suntor. we want to have a quick chat about the, these dive computers look damn good, I have to mm-hmm. say, these days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not mm-hmm. these big, clunky, massive mm-hmm. wall clocks strapped to your arm, wrist type thing <laughs> that I used to remember diving 25 years ago with. These are right. these are really nice, and uh, the the D5 copper, which I think comes out, came out yesterday, right? From it did, w- it did, 15th of February. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it, it came out yesterday. This is one really nice looking piece of equipment. Right. Well, that's important to me because uh, obviously, as you know, I'm an extremely good looking man. And so when I go diving, what I like nothing more is to walk out of the water and straight to the Baccarat table. You've been wow. quiet so, while I, I so said you, that I was very good looking. You didn't respond. So professional journalist here, Jason, it's always, <laughs> always good about listening to what people say. So the, the good thing is I do remember in season one, you referred to yourself as a piece of flotsam. So you, yes. you've upgraded yourself to Daniel Craig, James Bond, 007. Uh, you're gonna and Gilmery. And uh, Gilmery. You're going to have to work on both your British and French accents for that to work, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did I did say I was a piece of flotsam. I'm like a piece of seaweed wrapped around Deadwood floating in the in the surge. So that's my that's more of my dive technique. Okay. Well, at least you can look good whilst doing it with a D5 copper strapped to your wrist, right? There is something to be said. You know, there's a lot of smart phones and smart watches out there. There is something nice about identifying with a adventure watch like Sunto, like a dive watch. There's something about having that on your wrist that kind of keeps you connected to the ocean in a way when you're not there. And I really do like that. And I think one final thing I'd say on this point is there's been numerous times where I've looked over and seen someone wearing a dive computer smartwatch like mm-hmm. the Sunto mm-hmm. D5 and give that knowing look, you know, that wink and a knowing look. And then you start up conversation about diving because you know that they're a diver. On that note. Yeah. Thank you for sponsoring Sunto. Thanks Sunto. Today's top tip comes from Rosie Bancroft, a Great Britain para-swimmer and a zoologist who gives a tip for a unique part of the dive community. 
I'm Rosie. I was a Great Britain para swimmer. I'm missing my leg. I'm a zoologist and a scuba diver. One of the biggest questions I get asked is, what do I need to help me swim? Or how do I dive with one leg? How do I swim with one leg? And my top tip for anybody who has missing a leg, missing an arm, has anything maybe that they think could be a limitation on them to dive or to swim, is that you do not need anything. <laughs> I do not need anything. I don't have any special tricks up my sleeve. I just have one fin and it works pretty well for me. <laughs> so that's my top tip. Finally, every episode, we share a story from you, the dive community, where we ask you to tell us about your best dive ever. Hi, this is Bill Beard from Bill Beard's Costa Rica. I have been diving in Costa Rica since 1970, and my best dive day ever would have to be on New Year's Eve day a few years back. Conditions were perfect, no wind, no rain, and the water temperature was a great 80 degrees. Me, my wife, and 10 friendly Texans were headed to the Bat Islands, hoping to see the bull sharks at the big scare. We had barely begun our descent when we spotted an enormous bull shark known as Freight Train. That set the tone right away. We knew it was going to be a great dive. Soon we had 16 to 20 bull sharks coming at us from all directions. Divers were pumping their fists and whooping and hollering through their rigs. And we swam through a huge school of horse-eyed jacks and spotted two giant Pacific manta rays. And returning to the boat, we saw four sailfish. Everyone was buzzing about the great dive and enjoying some fresh pineapple when we double-hooked a mahi-mahi and a yellowfin tuna. As they were being reeled in, a humpback whale breached near the stern. No one knew which way to look. There was so much going on. Knowing we had dinner in the cooler, we gave high fives all around and headed to the next dive site. And Black Rock didn't disappoint. It was filled with numerous schools of fish and a huge squadron of eagle rays. Near the end of the dive, a whale shark hung around with us for almost 15 minutes. Divers were grinning from ear to ear. And back on the beach, we enjoyed a hot shower, a cold beer, and a great meal from our fresh catch. It was the epitome of why we love this business. Great diving, tremendous marine life, and happy clients. Who could ask for more? We'd love to hear your story about diving. So at the end of the show, you'll find out all the info you need to submit your best dive ever. Thanks for listening to the Deeper Blue podcast. Find out more on all the stories you've heard this week, plus connect to the world's largest online dive community, at deeperblue.com and if you like what you've heard please subscribe like and comment wherever you hear your podcasts these comments and subscribes really make a difference before we go i want to give a big shout out to jason elias our producer in case you didn't know he has an amazing podcast about people who have a deep connection to our world's oceans Connections strong enough that they've dedicated some part of their lives to being in or working on behalf of the water. Take a listen when you get a moment to Jason's show, The Big Deep Podcast. Every week, we want to hear your stories and share them with the world. So please record and send in your short story of your best dive ever. Keep it brief, no longer than two minutes, please. And in it, tell us your name and location where you were on the dive, 
what happened that make it so great and why it's meant so much to you. You can get that over to us at bestdiveever at deeperblue.com or head to our website podcast.deeperblue.com forward slash bestdiveever. Join us again next week and explore much more of The Deeper Blue.